Greetings and salutations, creature feature lovers. This is Mr. Venom welcoming you to episode two of No More Room in Hell Presents Creature Comforts. Let me go ahead and introduce my co-host. First is uh, from Cinema Attack, Celluloid Dissections, and, and a multitude of others, Mr. Derek B. How you doing, Derek? Hey, what's going on, man? We survived <laughs> the commentary last night. So- it was insane. That was an interesting show. Yeah, with all with three out of the four of us, uh, it being a first time watch for us. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting commentary. I, I'm not usually a fan of watching something for the first time when I'm doing a commentary, but ultimately, you know, if it's going to be like a Halloween, you know, second tier, you know, B movie type thing, then I'm okay with it. And ultimately, I think it came out pretty good. So yeah, we'll talk about that at the end of the show, folks, to let you know when that's going to be coming out. But uh to introduce my next co-host from such shows as the Graveyard Shit and uh, with me and Mike Merriman on Fresh Cuts, it is Don and Ellie. How you doing, Don? Yo, what's going on, everyone? Yeah, great to be here underneath the moonlight as always. Awesome, awesome. All right, folks. So uh, this being our second episode and, you know, with us still kind of putting more uh, glossy finishes on the show as far as future segments and things like that. We just decided to kind of make this one kind of a loose show. It's October. We're all in the middle of our horror watches. We're all busy with other shows. I myself scheduled myself for 21 podcasts in the month of October, which I know for some podcasters isn't much, but for others, it's a lot. For me, it's a lot because, you know, still got a full-time job, still have a wife, you know, still got other responsibilities, but Still, you know, it's my passion, my love. I'm sure I speak for Derek and Don as well. You know, we all love doing this, getting together. So so we're going to keep this one a little loose, and we'll probably be in and out of here fairly quickly this week. But let's go ahead and start out with a little bit of news that uh, we were able to get. This piece of news actually uh, really excites me. Um, This is more kaiju news, but it was something that I discovered this week. Um, Those of you who listen to our underwater kaiju from outer space know that we don't really have much of a news segment on that one. So I went ahead and brought it here. And the reason I'm excited is a a new movie was announced that's going to be coming out in February on February 4th of next year, 2022. That's its release date in Europe and, you know, Asian countries. Uh, The name of the film in Japanese is called Daikaiju no uh, Atishamatsu. Atashimatsu, Atashimatsu. So, hmm. Daikachi no Atashimatsu. The literal translation of that is The Great Monster's Remains. But the tentative English title for this film, when we get it in this region, is going to be called Kaiju Cleanup. Now, folks, anyone who knows about me knows that I've always had this kind of weird obsession with what happens after a horror movie, because ultimately horror movies don't really have happy endings. Anybody who survives still has to deal with trauma and PTSD for pretty much the rest of their life. And it's one of those subjects that I've always been interested in. This movie, Kaiju Cleanup, as the title implies, is about a cleanup crew that actually works for the Japanese government and cleans up dead kaiju so from what i understand this movie is going to start the way most kaiju movies end where the evil or bad kaiju dies at the hands of a good or righteous kaiju and then uh, this uh, group gets called in to clean up and the movie's pretty much going to take off from there I, I don't see much information on whether this is going to be a horror comedy if, it, if it's even going to be horror because ultimately i wouldn't expect to get any 
kaiju action. If it's going to be mostly about this crew that cleans up the mess afterwards, I would imagine the kaiju action is going to be fairly limited. But this film's written and directed by Satoshi Miki um, and stars uh, some... Japanese people whose names I can't pronounce, but <laughs> one uh, one member from uh, oh god, what is that um, anime? It ends with Kenshin, mm. whatever the hell that is. Uh, the star of that uh, anime is actually going to be in this movie as well. Um, like I said, information is still kind of tight on it. They just talk about the fact that it's a special forces unit uh, who works alongside demolition teams to help dispose of you know giant kaiju. Um, the first kaiju in the film is described as being 1150 feet long. Uh, so that's a pretty much a gigantic, um, it, pretty much the size of almost two Tokyo domes. If anybody knows how big the Tokyo dome is in Japan. So I, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? I'm, I'm very excited for this. This is something that I had been thinking about for years. Like what happens to dead kaiju after the movie's over, but I'm very excited about this one. What do you guys think about this? Uh, all I know is I was the one that published the trailer, which I'm probably assuming is where you got the information from. Oh, no, I didn't realize. I was the one. Oh, nice. I didn't even realize. There was no, a I, <laughs> no I, post, I published the article on Asian Movie Pulse. So that's basically all I know. Um, oh, all okay. I, they gave me the link to the trailer and they told me to write an article for it. Nice. So I just translated the description in the article, posted the thing, grabbed an, inter, an image off the online and then just used that. So that I was one of the. So that's basically all I know. Um, that, like what Venom said is basically just this thing washes ashore, which um, the, the the description he gave is actually kind of close uh, to the Godzilla Earth from the anime trilogy. Um, it's supposedly bigger than he is, just by a few feet. So yeah, it's supposedly like you know one of the biggest things that's ever existed, and it's basically just like he said, the race to get it out of the waters before some natural disaster happens. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking it's more going to be along the kind of like the Shin Godzilla line where it's not monster action at all. It's human drama. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, it's the fact that there's a giant kaiju that's kind of just going to make it seem kind of you know, like on the fringes of like what we talk about. But I'm intrigued about the concept. I've always I loved it when it was a fun little um, addition to the Godzilla animated uh, the 98 series. One of the mm-hmm. episodes, one of the episodes dealt with that. Nice. As uh, one of the side plots, uh, yeah, one of the side plots involving them having to uh, clean up after the remains of one of Godzilla's battles and get the monster um, carted off. Mm-hmm. That was uh, one of the side plots, and then that you know there was like, this that was like the one side story, and then the there's a second side story that led to the new monster of the week. So very cool. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun episode, and then um, that was like the first I've ever heard of somebody doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we get shades of it in Biolante. Yep, where you see the cleanup from the '85 series, but you know that's just like a five-minute segment segment in the middle of the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like this seems like it's going to be the entire film, so I'm kind of intrigued how this is going to go down. So I- I'm not expecting a wall-to-wall kaiju film. Um, maybe yeah. we'll get some flashbacks of how the thing got killed, which mm-hmm. will probably generate some kaiju fun. But I- I'm intrigued regardless. You know, it's still going to be something I'm intrigued in. So can't wait for it. Very cool. Derek, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I was interested in what I seen of it. You know, I actually, I think I remember seeing the trailer when it first was posted. And it looked interesting enough to me, you know. I I don't mind a little more social commentary tales in my kaiju films, so 
I think they're definitely going to do some kind of like commentary in this Mm -hmm. film that's kind of related to Japan's ongoings now or whenever the film was first thought of, you know, in that sense. So I'm interested in, you know, I just got to see more of the movie to give my full, like full opinion on it, you know? Well, uh, like I said, coming out February 4th, uh, 2022 in Japan, uh, no, announcement to my knowledge of a u.s release yet though i would imagine it wouldn't be too much after that um so yeah look out for that one i'd say probably spring or summer of next year out here in north america and if anyone is listening to my voice and lucky enough to be in you know an asian country or somewhere in western europe then you know you got something to look forward to on february 4th so yeah that is kaiju cleanup um derek i think you said you had a little piece of news for us yeah you know how uh, Vinegar Syndrome is a company that I think we all have some knowledge of. They put out some interesting movies in the when their first few years of a company. Uh, they first dwelled into like weird exploitation and adult films from the seventies <laughs> uh, when they first started. You know, it was weird because I bought this. I'm like, is this a fucking porno? Why is everyone <laughs> picking this up? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh. They actually stepped up their game recently, especially picking up new companies to be like a you know partner with, like mm-hmm. uh, Dark Side releasing and uh, what's the other Gunpowder and Sky and uh, even the the company uh, that released oh Altered Innocence. They actually just partner up with, uh, which we release like movies like Knife Plus Heart and uh, other things. So they're doing some big things, and you know they. Started putting out 4Ks recently. Uh, their first few were interesting choices like Tammy and the T-Rex. Then they did uh, uh, that weird Christmas movie we all watched when it was on Shutter. What the fuck was that called? Uh, what, Deadly Dial- Games? Yeah, oh, yeah. Dial something for Santa, yeah. Yeah, that one they put on 4K. Then they put out like, the Beastmaster, which was like a game changer. I'm like... Of all companies, I did not expect Vinegar Syndrome to put out the Beastmaster. <laughs> you know, it's a weird. And then you know, then they put out like uh, they're putting out newer movies too. They just announced that they're putting Sensor on 4K. You know, uh, but uh, they just announced a few of their Black Friday titles. Actually, two of them. I just realized two of them are actually kind of in our wheelhouse. Uh, the first one, which is part of like their uh, big bundle, is is William Malone's 1985 film Creature. It's kind of like an alien ripoff. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen that before, it's a uh, yeah. That was the TV about, movie, right? No, no, oh, this no. Movie, oh, this, okay. movie, this movie's kind of rapey, and I'll tell ah. you why. Uh, it actually has a very interesting cast of characters. Uh, like the main captain dude is played by Ferris Bueller's dad. <laughs> but then all, all of a sudden because uh, they go because there was another ship that was actually like a Russian ship that they were competing with that's on the same planet and they go to like the remains and it's destroyed but there's one survivor and he's played by Klaus Kinski <laughs> nice so you know where it's going to get rapey because Klaus is just kind of a perv during this whole movie in his scenes because there's like this weird butch like security lady that works on like the the ship with the main crew, 
And Klaus Kinsey all of a sudden just grabs this lady's ass, and it's weird because they make knowledge of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a weird movie. Uh, I watched it for prep for the first time for the 1985 show that I did with 22 Shots. Uh, but this is exciting because you could only get like bootleg copies of this movie for years. It didn't really have any good releases until now. It's kind of shocking. I'm curious because it actually has both cuts of the movie too on the release. Because they, there was another cut, I think it's called Titan something. I can't think of the last word on that, but yeah, it's the Titan cut, I think it's called. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see what this is. I, uh, I like kind of these cheesy alien rips off. So plus it has Klaus Kinski in it, so uh, I liked it. Uh, I know. Did, you, did any of you guys see that film before? No, I was thinking I was thinking about the television uh, miniseries from 1998, Peter Benchley's Creature, uh, with uh, Kim Cattrall and Craig T. Nelson. You remember it was like, I don't know if you saw it, but it was the it was like the humanoid shark. It was like half man, half shark. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was actually surprisingly effective for a cheesy. Uh, I, I, we call it a miniseries, but it was basically a two parter, two nights, just like Stephen King's It. But yeah, that's what I thought you were talking about. No, the one that you're talking about, I have not seen. Yeah, same here. I've seen yeah. the, I've seen the Peter Benchley miniseries, but I haven't mm-hmm. seen this one. Yeah, uh, Willie Malone would later go on to do like House on Haunted Hill. Fear mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, but he did a few creature features like in this time period, like he did Scared to Death, and uh, which. Those creatures would later go on to be in a movie called Sinjinor. His design, he designed those creatures themselves. So they actually credited him for, like, the sequel. It's kind of a sequel in name only, but they use the same creatures. Uh, But, yeah, those those are interesting. But uh, the big uh, one that I was actually excited for, because I missed out on the original Blu-ray of this, because it was originally released by Olive Films, I never picked it up, and there was a good reason, because I could only find it at Barnes & Noble, and Barnes & Noble sells everything at fucking list price. Yeah. Tix is coming to 4K, which I was Woo. like, what? Uh, this is directed by Tony Randall, who directed Hellraiser 2, produced by Brian Usna, and effects by uh, Doug Beswick in this film, uh, who did Aliens and Terminator. Inter- yeah, it has Seth Green in this, and Alfonso from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> And fucking yep. Clint Howard, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's actually a very un, kind of underrated, like nineties movie, in my opinion, you know, it's actually one of the better ninety because it's, it kind of takes those sensibilities of like the fifties and kind of updates them for the era. Yeah. But you know, it's very, it, it is nineties and kind of cheesy and kind of outdated when you look at it today. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a fun movie. So yeah, I think this actually has a ton of special new special features because, uh, if you know all of films, they actually don't put any special features on their Blu-rays because they suck. <laughs> That's why they cut, and, they, and those deep Blu-rays cost forty dollars usually. Oof. But yeah, you get a new uh, making of th- Ticks, which is like a three-part making of documentary with interviews with the director, or some actors, editors, and you know filmmakers that were involved with the film. There's two commentary tracks. First one with Tony Randall and actor Clint Howard, moderated by Nathaniel Thompson, which is very weird because he because he does a lot of like interviews with Troy Harworth. Hmm. Uh, 
for like Italian movies, you know. So I was like, whoa, that's a weird. <laughs> he's doing one on ticks. <laughs> but then you have another commentary with uh, the special effects supervisor and the stop motion animator of the film, and it's moderated by uh, director Joe Bigos. <laughs> Joe Bigos, I like him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you get some Joe Bigos talking about ticks on this. That's <laughs> That's pretty. You know, the the price because yeah, this is the price for the limited slipcase edition. I I bet when the, the, they did release a standard of the Beastmaster when it first came out. Mm-hmm. So you know you probably get the standard edition of this. You know unless you want the slip box, which is actually because I'm looking at it right now. Mm-hmm. It's got a beautiful art from the same dude who did the art for Hobo with a shotgun. The <laughs> dude designs. Yeah. Uh, I, you know. Uh, I'm I'm thinking about grabbing it down the line, maybe when it actually hits on Black Friday, because these usually don't sell out right away because they're so pricey. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, if you don't want to spend almost forty dollars, I would just wait for the standard edition, which they will release. I know they will. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's definitely some good news. I I, I kind of got to the ticks party a little late. I remember seeing the trailer in the '90s. It, that's like early '90s, right? Yeah. 92 or 93, I believe. Yeah. So I remember when it was new and I remember seeing a trailer on like a VHS of something else that I had rented. And I just remember thinking it looked a little silly. The trailer kind of makes it look, uh, Derek even mentioned like 50s sensibility. And that's what I was thinking. I was thinking that they were just going for a cheesy creature feature thing. Uh, But I ended up watching it maybe five years ago for the first time. I I was just bored one afternoon. I found it uh, streaming somewhere. I saw the cast. I'm like, hey, here's a bunch of recognizable faces in a what I assume will be a cheesy 90s horror movie. So I checked it out. But you know what? It's surprisingly effective. Like, I actually thought they did a pretty good job. Now, maybe it's because I went in expecting not much. Like I said, I went in expecting just the cheesiest of the cheese, you know, silly creature features with little wind-up ticks kind of running around. But they actually did a really, really good job with some of these effects. Some of the kills look really juicy. You know, the story is whatever. You know, a bunch of people trapped in a cabin in the woods, you know, surrounded by ticks, by these giant ticks. Obviously, they get into the cabin little by little, but I, I just remember thinking, uh, being very surprised at how entertained I was without, you know, cringing or rolling my eyes. There's a little bit of that. Obviously, it's an early 90s genre film, so, you know, the dialogue may not always be great, but ultimately, Clint Howard's entertaining. I, I remember Seth doing a pretty good job. I don't remember how uh, Alfonso uh, Ribeiro did, but I do remember him being in there and being mildly entertaining. So, yeah. Um, definitely a surprise that Vinegar Syndrome's putting that one out, but a, a good surprise, definitely. And I'm sure the movie has its fans, so that 4K will sell, regardless of the $40 price tag, probably. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, if anybody else, if anyone doesn't have anything else, I guess we will go ahead and go into our feature review. Of course, that is 1941's The Wolfman from Universal Studios. Uh, Let's go ahead and play the trailer right now, and then we will come back with our review. Be right back. That's funny. Another dog. (laughs) No, that's a wolf. 
A wolf and a star. What does that mean? I thought you said you were psychic. Oh, I am. But this is only wood and silver, and it hasn't blue eyes. Well, that's a very rare piece. It shows the wolf in the pentagram, the sign of the werewolf. Werewolf? What's that? Well, that's a human being who at certain times of the year changes into a wolf. You mean runs around on all fours and bites and snaps and bays at the moon? Oh, even worse than that sometimes. is bitten by a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Folks, we are back. As I mentioned, that was the trailer for 1941's The Wolfman, written by Kurt uh, Soidmach, uh, directed by George Lamb. Siadmach. Siadmach. Thank you. Yes, Siadmach. Of course, starring Claude Rains, Warren William, Ralph Bellamy, and a a chorus of others. Um, Of course, you know, Claude Rains plays... um, Sir John Talbot, father to Lawrence Talbot, who is the focus of our attention for this film. It's a shorty. Uh, This movie is only, IMDb actually says an hour and ten minutes, but the version that I watched, for some reason, only was an hour and eight minutes. So, you know, whatever. Um, Just over an hour. Nice runtime. That's one of the nice things about Universal Films, uh, the, the classic Universal monsters. You know, they rarely went over, you know, 90 minutes, which was kind of nice. Let's go ahead and bring in Don first. Don, tell me a little bit about your experience with the Wolfman and maybe just your general thoughts. Okay. Um, so this was one of the uh, first of the Universal Films I saw. I, I believe I'd seen Frankenstein and Dracula first. Um, I, I just happened to be catching catch them on some, like, AMC or TCM or one of those Halloween marathons one year and was like, okay, great. You know, you know, I, I was, I liked them, but it wasn't more like I wanted to seek them out just because, you know, I was a fan of those and wanted more. It was just, it's a horror film on TV. It's Halloween. Let's just celebrate the season watching as much as we can. That was uh, basically my mindset going into Wolfman. Just it's a horror film on TV, you know, well, let's do it, you know? And I, I originally liked Frankenstein the most, but this one was right up there, and uh, it's still probably in my top five, maybe just outside. But like, it's like fighting for for that kind of like placement on like my Universal list. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it still holds up. It's one of my personal favorites. Not necessarily as much when we're looking at werewolf films. There's a few issues that I have with it if we're looking at it as a werewolf film, but trust me when I say by issues or nitpicks, it's still absolutely enjoyable. Uh, it holds up incredibly well. There's a lot to like with the folklore. There's, you know, a lot to like with, you know, the, the effects work at the time, which, you know, again, you have to take into account. This is a film that will probably approach its 100th birthday before all of us, you know, this will approach our 100th birthday 
Tuesday before we pass on. So keep that into consideration. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it, it's just endlessly entertaining. The zippy runtime is an absolute breeze. My issues are just nitpicks. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a fun time and definitely definitely still holds up incredibly well. Awesome. Derek, come on in. Tell me what you think about The Wolfman. Oh, I love this movie, man. Uh, I've seen this uh, right around the right age. This is actually probably one of my first universal monster movies. It was either there's a creature. I just gravitate to the more sympathetic creatures of these genres, usually. <laughs> and The Wolfman's... It's, it's a great movie because it's a guy, about this guy who turns to a wolf but he doesn't know he turns he knows but he doesn't because he's like did I do something last night you know he's kind of it's kind of like that psychosis thing that plays with the character that I really like and it, it goes well into like the later series and unlike a lot of the other monsters the Wolfman was only played by one man and that was Lon Chaney Jr. and to roll that you know even to this day he said that was mine it was my <laughs> baby you know because, you know, in that sense where, you know, I, I liked watching the development through the series of the character of Lawrence Tablet and the Wolfman in general. It was just interesting, especially when you get the House of Dracula, which it get we won't spoil it. We'll probably talk talk about that movie one time sometime during this on another show. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a great, interesting character. And, you know, it's interesting because it's a monster movie but it's also like a character study too of this guy and his everyday life and you know being like an outsider and outside world type of deal where you know you know he kind of gravitates where he connects with the gypsy character of uh maria oscar toes you know in that sense where you know she knows what's going on because she's been through it you know in that sense but uh yeah, I love this movie for, for passion. Uh, there is some goofy moments that we'll talk about later. Like, we <laughs> yeah. talked off air about some things. Yeah, I don't believe that, but, you know, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, for me, I, I actually have a very similar history with this one as I did with King Kong. Uh, we discussed that on the last episode. I was not a big fan of this the first time I watched it. Now, admittedly, I was a jaded teenager, still kind of spreading my wings in this whole community we call horror so it was just one of those things that people told me, oh, it's an absolute classic. You got to see it. So I, I went ahead and watched it. This would have been before American Werewolf in London was released. So so possibly like maybe the year of or the year before American Werewolf was the first time I saw this. So, yeah, I'm like 10, 11 years old. Definitely not the type of horror film to entertain a very young horror fan like that. So, yeah, I just thought it was I thought it was a little slow. For some reason, I remember the movie even being longer. Like I thought I thought it was like a full length 90 minutes just because maybe, like I said, I was younger. I wasn't you know, I didn't have my critical eyes yet. It just I didn't find it very appealing, very exciting compared to some of the other like late 70s and very early 80s werewolf movies that I had seen up to that point. But over the years, man, you really this movie has some 
real emotionality behind it. I mean, th- this is a very emotional story. Derek already mentioned it being one of the most sympathetic characters in the Universal Monster um, universe. And ultimately, I-, I can't disagree. You know, Larry Talbert is not a bad guy. You know, he- obviously he comes from money. He has a little bit of privilege, you know, in the way he carries himself, the way he speaks to people. But he doesn't come off as an asshole necessarily, just a confident guy. You know what I mean? You know, some of the some of his interactions with our female lead in the film could be questionable today. But obviously in 1941, you know, people weren't really thinking that way yet. You know, it's a little cringy watching him interact, especially early on, you know, where he's kind of almost forcing himself into this girl's life. Ultimately, for 1941, it still absolutely works. And then ultimately, my favorite character in this film is Maleva. I love this gypsy woman. She is endlessly entertaining. Every single scene that she is in, she absolutely steals. I mean, she's taking every scene away from these stars, these big name Hollywood stars that are in these scenes with her. But ultimately, she is just so great, so entertaining, so into her role that that for me, she is the shining uh, spotlight of this one. Obviously, the subtext, you know, you know, men going through change. And, you know, we're going to get into that. Obviously, you guys all know me. I've got a whole page here of uh, some social commentary uh, stuff that I want to talk about. So obviously, an absolute classic, ultimately, uh, over my last few viewings, especially this past week, you know, the emotional content of the film definitely strikes me a lot harder now. And and you really feel bad for Lawrence. I mean, he, he didn't do anything to deserve this. I mean, ultimately, he did the right thing. He was helping someone. He was you know, trying to save someone who was also being attacked by a wolf. But then he, in turn, gets attacked. So, you know, uh, what's the what's the moral there? Don't bother trying because it might end up screwing you up even more. I mean, it's almost a weird morality to kind of portray in the film, but ultimately the story works, you know, once we get more information. And obviously, you know, as a modern horror fan watching this, not a lot of it's going to be a surprise. I mean, this movie started all the werewolf tropes, you know, people waking up the next morning with like mud on their feet or not knowing what they did. You know, I mean, we that might be kind of tired now, but in 1941, it was just absolutely revolutionary. Great filmmaking. I was actually kind of struck at how nice this movie looks. Once again, 1941, I know it's Universal, one of the biggest film companies at the time. But, man, this movie really held up really well. You can tell that a lot of people have taken care of this film. These Universal Blu-rays just look gorgeous. So, yeah, I'm right on board with my co-host. This is a great film, an absolute classic. What do you say, guys? Let's get into the meat and potatoes of this a little bit. Now, our movie opens up with actually something that you don't see in this time period, and that's full motion video credits. So as the stars' names go by the screen, we're actually seeing scenes of them in the film. That's something that at least I don't remember really seeing in the 30s and 40s um, out of Universal. I know... There were some like Laurel and Hardy and uh, some of the com- the comedic shorts of the time w- that would uh, they would kind of do that. But as far as like, you know, serious film, I, I can't think of any. Uh, can you guys? No, no this is actually the mm. one of two uh, Universal Monster movies that actually did this. Oh, what's the other one? Man Made Monster from the year before. Oh, OK. I've never actually seen that one. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> That was actually uh, their first vehicle with Cheney. It was like his mm. kind of like a practice movie. His coming out party. <laughs> yeah, you know, for like Universal. But uh, 
yeah, it, it was interesting when I was watching it because you know, like I didn't even think about that. Like the first time I ever seen this, I'm like, oh, this is just, the only thing I could think of is that they usually do it at the end of movies, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it struck me because, you know, in this day and age, we don't really get a lot of opening credits. If we get opening credits, it'll just be like the title card with just maybe director, producer and just a couple of names, but not like a full blown, full motion video opening credits. So it was just kind of refreshing to see. And it's also really helpful for the viewer to get a name with the face right away because it was actually giving the character names too. you know, it, it, it would say Lon Chaney Jr. as Lawrence Talbert. Um, so or it, it kind of or our favorite Bella Lugosi, or our favorite Bella Lugosi, yes, Bella Lugosi as Bella. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering if he had another name, but everybody on the set just kept calling him Bella. So they're like, fuck it. Just make the character Bella and make it easier for everybody. <laughs> From what I remember, I don't think he was actually supposed to be in the role. I think he was Ooh. just a last minute addition. Makes sense. Okay. I think he was. If I'm if I'm remembering right, because I know, I'm trying to re- get all of these like early forties mm-hmm. home stuff. I think he was there was originally supposed to have been another character in the role, but he ended up like dropping out or got sick or something and couldn't do it, and so they thrust Bella in at the last minute to try to like boost the box office sales as like you know okay well he's starring alongside of him, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think the role was originally written with him in mind because. I mean, spoiler alert, he is actually not in the film all that much. He's actually the first victim. So. Yeah, definitely more of a cameo. Uh, you know, I don't know how big cameos were, you know, back in the 40s, but, I, like you know. A, I, no, I'm just saying more like a special appearance kind of a credit. Yes, exactly. You know, special yeah. appearance by. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, more what I was thinking of. Because he was still big at this time, too, because, you know, he just yeah. did like Son of Frankenstein, I think, the year before this, so. I mean, it's only 10 years after Dracula, so I would imagine he's still a pretty big name in the industry at this point. I kind of prefer his role in Son of Frankenstein, you know, like fucking Igor. Yes. (laughs) Tell you the truth, that's my favorite role of his of all time. Yeah. I like it more than his Dracula films. Very cool. That's valid. Well, I'm actually actually not a huge Dracula fan to begin with, so it's not like there's a huge leap, but I, I, I genuinely like the Igor, the, the Igor films in the Frankenstein canon, so. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. the original Dracula movie, it, it's not like a spectacular film. It, it's it's kind of slow. It's very, uh, very quiet. That's the very problem Very quiet, yeah. yeah. But ultimately, I mean, the movie is Bela Lugosi. I mean, he basically makes the original Dracula. So if you like Bela, you're going to like the original Dracula. But I remember being struck at how slow it was the first time I saw it because it's Dracula. You know, it's the original Dracula film. Everyone talks about being, you know, the granddaddy of them all next to Nosferatu, maybe, um, and a couple of other, you know, oddball ones. But I just remember being struck at how slow it was. And then even the way it ends, it ends very unceremoniously and abrupt. So I was just like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I prefer. I actually, this is might be weird. I actually watched uh, Dracula for the first time. It was the Philip Glass cut of the movie. Ah, I've never seen that do, one. Do you know what that is? I've heard, I've vaguely heard about it, but I don't, I've never seen where, it. Now. Where Philip Glass uh, actually composed the whole score for Dracula and replaced, you know, like the Swan Lake and sure. stuff. And there's, there's music throughout it. It was actually, it moved a lot better with it, too. It, oh, really? Because nice. it's. Because it's Philip Glass and the, with Kronos Quartet, the guys who did Wrecking for a Dream. You know, <laughs> so it was like, do 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 do
that's actually the version of the movie I prefer is because it was the first I seen because I did watch it with the original music. I'm like, Oh shit. There's no, there's nothing going on here. There's like, there should be like some music going on here. What the fuck's going on? Yeah. You know, I, um, it, with this film. Yeah. Uh, the score, I like it. It's effective. It's not a classic for me as far as Wolfman goes, mind you. Um, I do enjoy it. But it's definitely it's not as striking to me as, say, King Kong, uh, the original Godzilla, um, you know, stuff like that. Even the original Frankenstein, I thought, had a really, really nice score. But this one's still effective. I really enjoy it. I, I like it a lot. Actually, you know, it's the funny thing, Venom. The score's not even, the score wasn't even actually written for this movie. Oh, really? What was it supposed to be? No, no, it's, it's, it's the same score from Man Made Monster. <laughs> Oh God! Is it really? Holy shit! That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and they actually used a lot, a lot of this music in later, like Universal movies. Like the main theme to the Wolfman mm-hmm. has actually been used millions of times in other universe. Like you'll even see like the same forest shot for like a credit scene in a few of the other movies. If we when we get to the like, it's the same like credit. Like the the whole forest is the same forest and like. Ghost of Frankenstein. It's hilarious in that sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right, so um, as our movie opens, uh, you know, we, we're introduced to Larry Talbot. Oh, by the way, folks, this movie obviously being from 1941, uh, this is the 80th anniversary. The exact anniversary will actually be this December, but it doesn't really – it didn't fit me as a good December movie despite its anniversary. I, I thought it would be a better October film, so we went with it this month. But, yeah, technically December 12th of this year, 2021, will be its 80th anniversary for this film. So, again, we're watching an 80-year-old film and still raving about it. So, obviously, there's got to be a lot of great stuff in there. So, let's go ahead and get into the movie. Like I said, we're introduced to Lawrence Talbot. Um, Everyone calls him Larry. He is the son of kind of a rich local... uh, What does his father actually do? He was a doctor, right? Yeah. Lord. They call him Lord, but I mean... Actual profession, I think he's the town doctor or yeah. magistrate or something like that. Yeah, and the credits he's in there is Sir John Talbot. So obviously he, the character has been knighted for whatever reason. So yeah, he's probably, obviously he's rich, uh, lives in a big mansion, and the movie kind of opens up with the return of Larry, who had left the mansion to kind of find his own way. And it kind of fits Larry's character. As I mentioned earlier, we see that Larry's, you know, a very confident guy, well-dressed, looks like he either comes from money or, you know, uh, has a really good career himself. I don't believe we really get into Larry's career much in this one. Like I said, he's just introduced as the son of Sir John Talbot. He comes back home. You know, he meets a local uh, shop, a shopkeeper. uh, What is her name? I forget. Gwen, right? Is that Gwen? Yeah, Gwen. Yeah. uh... So he meets Gwen. Uh, This is the interaction that I have a lot of problems with because He's, I forget his exact line, but he says something that is really, really creepy, like shwarmy. And you see Gwen's reaction. She actually, like, smiles, has, like, a coy smile, and it's like, wow, what a difference 80 years makes. Because if he would have said that exact same thing to a woman now, he's probably taking a knee to the balls. But like I said, I don't remember. Among other sp- things, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I mean, Among other things. Yeah, like I said, uh, I'm a- he's a confident guy, so. <laughs> he's yeah, it's actually interesting you look at their interactions, too, because, fun fact, Lon Chaney Jr. and Evelyn Akers didn't get along in real life. Hmm, that's too bad. 
Yeah, cause, and they're in multiple movies together, so it's like they hated each other through all these fucking movies. Wow. Uh, even uh, her, she was actually married to Richard Denon, who's one, who was later like one of the stars of the original Creature from the Black Lagoon. But he he almost got into a fistfight with Cheney one time. <laughs> uh, I was watching all the special features and commentaries and shit. I learned all this shit today. Nice. You know, so it was like. It was interesting. It was, it was refreshing because I kind of knew that in the background when I was like making sure what to say and shit. But uh, yeah, they didn't have the. They worked together for multiple films because you'll see her in like different roles. Like as mm-hmm. the series progresses, like she's in like Ghost of Frankenstein later on with Cheney Jr. She's in like one of the Mummy movies, I think, with him, and even like uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I think she actually plays Doctor Frankenstein in that one. Yeah, she actually, uh, yeah she, she's a lead in that one. Very cool. Yeah, well, actually, uh, that, that makes me kind of appreciate the performance a little more. Whenever I hear that actors don't like each other in real life, but they still have some sort of chemistry on screen, uh, that, that's pretty admirable, you know? Uh, obviously, they're, they're working through their personal feelings and just trying to get the job done, and ultimately, they did, and they did a great job. So, yeah, just hearing that there was animosity on the set makes me appreciate the acting prowess that much more. So, very cool. Thank you, Derek. Unfortunately, I don't own those Universal Blu-rays, so Derek is probably going to be our, our main source of uh, trivia and, and little bits of information like that like i did i did i did more research on um events leading up to the film which i'll talk about after we uh, talk about the film a little bit but like i said at this point larry while he's at this shop where he meets gwen he sees a cane with a silver wolf's head on it and it's got like a pentagram etched into it as well and for some reason it just strikes him he likes it he's not 100 percent sure why but it just strikes him as something that he would use he ends up buying the cane you know ends up hitting on gwen a couple of times and a very uncomfortable scene they end up going their separate ways and then that evening is when we get our proverbial attack larry is walking home you know through the kind of countryside by himself he sees someone from the the gypsy kind of they, they were just at uh, a gypsy like uh, what do you call those people mind readers you know uh, fortune tellers blah 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 yeah. where we see a scene with Bella Lugosi playing the gypsy Bella actually uh, giving someone their reading and he sees the mark of the wolf the pentagram in a circle on her hand but he ends up just getting scared we don't know why like i on first watch i remember getting mad at him for not telling the woman it's like why wouldn't you tell her that she's in danger that's kind of your responsibility as a fortune teller Uh, wait a couple minutes and it makes sense (laughs) to be fair if he if he knew he was a fucking werewolf like that's what i'm saying why would he be on the job anyways right now? Why wouldn't he be locked away? His mom knows that too, you know? Yep. Like, yeah. Thank I'm, you for bringing up one of my issues. Um, I, I completely agree with Derek. Yeah. If he's, if he knows he's the werewolf, why is he reading? Why is he doing palm readings at this time of night? Yep. No, that's yeah. Uh, and yeah. then uh, going back to the mom too, it's like, I'm still on the fence on if Maleva is a good mom or a bad mom because yeah, she protects her son, but ultimately she allows him to rampage because you know it's the type of thing they don't really mention. Like in this movie, it doesn't seem like the full moon is necessary, so we don't necessarily get a full moon trope because Larry turns into the wolf like multiple nights in a row. 
so good on them for that. I mean, obviously, where the where the full moon thing came from, I have no idea. I'm sure that comes later on in like the that, 50s. That 60s. was originally that was originally introduced in Werewolf in London. Oh, same, so same that's writer. a film before before this. Same, yeah, okay. yeah, same so, writer as this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so then he just kind of subverted that trope for this one, which well, I actually appreciate. Is, I like that. Well, the thing is, is that Werewolf in London, if you've seen it, is pretty much a dry run or like a prototype for this one. Yeah. And then a lot of um, what they did with um, Mad Made Monster is actually incorporated into this. And that's kind of what led to to um, the Wolfman in general, is that a lot of the storyline aspects and a lot of the folklore was originally brought in in Werewolf from London, but mm-hmm. there's a few small things here and there. Um, the main difference is uh, uh, the aversion to silver. That yeah. was that was not in Werewolf from London, but it's used here. But so it, the thing is, is that everyone seems thinks that's where it came from. But uh, Siadmak has said that he actually got inspired from the stories about the Beast of Jebadan. That was. Where they originally used silver and supposedly killed the beast was that they used silver stakes and that's what killed it. Very so cool. Is, a, that, is that what that movie? The that's what the I was gonna say. Before, yeah, that's what I was just about to say. If you're familiar, if the Beast of Jevaldan seems familiar to you, it's the inspiration for the film um, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, Brotherhood of the Wolf is loosely inspired by the recounts of that story of uh, that storyline, the Beast. Very as well cool. as an awesome Power Wolf song. So if you're interested in that, check that out. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, yeah. yeah, that's that's actually where I was uh, going to lead to as well. So oh, I just thought of an awesome Werewolf song off the title, the Ice Earth song, Wolf. Oh, that yes, I love Ice Earth. Yeah, maybe we'll yeah, do that. Yeah. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> so, like I said, that evening, you know, Larry uh, witnesses an attack of, uh, you know, someone who was just getting their uh, fortune told by Bella at the, uh, you know, at the tent where he was doing his uh, readings. He goes to assist. He he's not he he thinks it's a wolf. He sees a wolf, but it's a, it's a, it's in silhouette. It's in shadow. So he he can't really tell a hundred percent. Obviously, in this day and age, uh, in these werewolf movies, they didn't turn into actual, you know, four-legged werewolves, you know, uh, the actual creature, like an American werewolf in London type thing. They remained humanoid, bipedal, where, you know, just hairier men. So so obviously, because of the darkness, Larry thinks that he's protecting this woman from just a random wolf or some kind of animal. Uh, during him trying to save the woman, he is bitten on the chest by the wolf. And he ends up killing it he, uh, with his silver cane, the cane that he just bought at the shop. He ends up bludgeoning it to the head with the silver cane, which then ends up killing the creature. As he is leaving the scene, the camera pans back to the creature. And we now see that it is not a wolf. It's actually Bella, Bella Lugosi's character, uh, lying dead on the ground. So that kind of clues you in as to why Bella didn't warn that woman about her reading, because he's the one who's actually going to act out uh, her future. So I, I guess it kind of makes sense, but still a little irresponsible for a fortune teller. And, and then the, the story just kind of goes from there. You know, uh, we have multiple instances of Larry, you know, not remembering where he was, somehow making it back to his room. During one scene, he actually makes it all the way back to his bedroom in his mansion, and there's actually wolf tracks and mud leading literally all the way up to his window into the window and then there's a few steps actually in his bedroom as 
as well. He looks down at his feet, realizes they are muddy, so he's starting to kind of put the puzzle together. He goes back to visit Maleva to kind of try to find out what exactly is happening. She tells him, you know, the famous story that I know we've all seen, uh, you know, the, the poem that she kind of reads about uh, the werewolf and his potential future. Obviously, Larry has issues with it, doesn't believe it. You know, he's a rational man in a rational world. So he's, you know, the stories of werewolves just don't cut it for him. But obviously, as more events start to unfold, he starts to believe that, yes, uh, I must be a werewolf, blah, blah, blah. We get we get a sort of transformation, but all we really see are the legs. We, we just see kind of his legs and feet. And, you know, it's that same technique that we're all, you know, the the kind of fading in uh, the the camera trick, basically, of the hair kind of uh, forming in. So, yeah, that's our first transformation. And, you know, he goes out, he does his thing. (laughs) (laughs) I I just mentioned. Yeah, please. It's so funny. The first time we see him transform, he's in a wife beater. (laughs) So... When he turned into a werewolf, he put on that shirt. <laughs> and maybe he was cold. <laughs> hey, you know Don, Donnie Rings loves his tank top, so maybe uh, Donnie Rings is part werewolf. <laughs> but those, you, you know what I mean? He actually put on a shirt when he turned after he was a wolf. I didn't actually notice that on the watch, but I totally believe you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I- I've never caught that actually myself either. Because <laughs> he's, he's in a wife beater when he sits down and then you see the legs turn. Oh, right. Yeah, you are correct. That's funny. little continuity <laughs> issue there, but nothing too major. It's 1941. We're going to be yeah, forgiving yeah. of continuity yeah. here and there. Yeah, especially we're, we're going to talk about the big, the big elephant in the room at the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we still got a bit to get there. But yeah, I forgot to mention that the day after Larry is first attacked by the wolf, when he tries to tell his dad and a doctor, uh, another doctor that's there about the attack, when he goes to show the scars, the scars have completely healed. They're gone. There's no injury. He completely healed overnight, which, of course, now makes him the prime suspect in the murder of this woman that was actually committed by Bela. The, uh, mom, Maleva, she must have grabbed Bella's body, or not grabbed his body, but uh, oh, actually, no, 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 they, they weren't next to each other. That's right. They found the cops found the woman first, and then they looked like a few feet away behind a tree, and that's where they found Bella's body. But because uh, Larry doesn't have any injuries on him the next day, he of course becomes the prime suspect. But he is adamant that it was a wolf. Uh, you know, a wolf was attacking that woman, and I attacked the wolf. Obviously, this kind of comes back when he has his conversation with Maleva, where Maleva actually admits that, yes, my son was the wolf. You know, I tried to protect him as much as I could, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, our movie kind of goes from there. I'm not going to get into, I mean, obviously, it's a 1941 movie. There's not a whole lot of spoilers that we could really avoid. I mean, I think everyone knows how this one ends. But one nice thing I like, too, is that there is no talk of silver bullets in this one, just silver in general. Obviously, silver bullets is kind of a werewolf trope now. But yeah, the, the fact that it was just a cane just made it that much more likable, too. I think if they would have introduced firearms into the into the series, especially in the hands of the heroine, I think it might have played a little oddly. As opposed, well, we to also just, have the censorship stuff at the time because you exactly. really couldn't. Yeah, you yeah. really couldn't uh, show much of that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense, too. But yeah, so like I said, it's a cane. Obviously, you know, we get multiple set pieces with uh, Talbert attacking random people. And, uh, you know, then we get our big finale at the end where Talbot is actually stopped by his own father with once again with the cane, uh, pretty much uh, emulating the scene from earlier when Larry killed Bela. Yeah, we, 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 we get kind of an abrupt ending with the film, too, because basically we just get a quick explanation of the police basically explain it away as uh, I, I, I forget exactly what they said. It was something like... Um, uh, Larry was attacking somebody else. Sir John saw the attack and uh, basically just stopped his son. The cops seemed to be happy with that explanation. No, no arrest. No, you know, no major investigation. And then the movie just ends. I mean, literally, it just goes to credits as soon as you get that officer kind of just explain their theory. So it is a little bit of an abrupt ending, almost jarring at times because there's no like epitaph to the film. It's literally here's the resolution. Boom. Here's the credits, which, you know, in this day and age, isn't really done all that often, even though I just watched Halloween Kills today, which does that exact same thing. But I'm going to leave it alone. So, yeah. So that's the basic story of the Wolfman. You know, obviously, you know, throughout the film. I'm going to have random questions, obviously. Uh, you know, I talk about some of the good versus evil allegories that they, they actually talk about it in the film. So it's not really much of subtext when it's actually in the script. But, you know, they talk about every man's struggle with good and evil, every person's struggle with good and evil. And they kind of try to form that into kind of like a lycanthropy uh, theory. So is lycanthropy actually mentioned in this movie? I think Sir John mentions it, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Yeah. I think yeah. he mentions he it, but I don't think they ever really dwell on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they just end up saying the poem and then move on. Exactly. Yeah, that, very, very right. You know, that's that's the major story of the Wolfman. Now, obviously, you know, there's some subtext in here, but there was there was one thing specifically that I wanted to talk about. And do you guys know the connection that Sigmund Freud has with this film? I kind of heard something about it, but yeah, go, yeah. go on. In, in the early 1900s, I, I want to say 1910 was the exact year, uh, Sigmund Freud actually started working with a patient that he dubbed the Wolfman. The Wolfman was actually another doctor. His name was Sergei Penkajev. He was born in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1886. And basically, he was having some personality issues, like not necessarily split personality or bipolar, but basically he was always a good kid, very quiet, very behaved. But then one day after his parents went on a weekend trip, they came back and he was completely different. They basically say that he had a 180 degree turn of his personality. Suddenly he became combative, aggressive, vulgar at times, and no one had any real explanation about it. Everybody was uh, the, the parents actually blamed their new nanny because, as it turns out, they actually had a new nanny that weekend and they thought that she must have done something to the kid, either abused him or maybe even just got into his head and, you know, turned him into this wild psycho. But as it turns out, Sigmund Freud worked with this man for eight years, did a lot of dream analysis with the kid and a lot of hypnotism and things like that. Well, I say kid, the, the guy was a doctor of what, 20, 34 years old at this time. So and Freud, what Freud found out was that it was actually childhood trauma that had been repressed from this guy. And just on this particular weekend, when his parents went away and came back, it just exploded. He basically, you know, it, all the emotions that he was bottling up or that he had somehow 
um, repressed, all just came out, and he just turned into this complete crazy person. Not literally like a psycho or anything like that, but like I said, very combative, very aggressive. Because of the theory of lycanthropy, uh, Sigmund Freud dubbed this man the Wolfman. And in 1918, he actually released a book called The Wolfman. Uh, this is, what, 23 years before the release of our film from Universal. But in in the book, Freud talks about the Wolfman's fear of castration and that some of the dreams that he would have, uh, he would dream of these white wolves. But instead of having their full bushy wolf tails, they actually had like short fox tails. And Freud uh, pretty much likened that to the Wolfman's fear of uh, basically uh, castration and loss of manhood. Freud kind of chalked it up to marriage, basically a fear of marriage, kind of like a fear of commitment type thing. Uh, that's kind of funny when it, when we look at this movie, because when was Larry Talbot attacked in this film? He was attacked right after he met Gwen, who mm-hmm. he obviously had sexual feelings for as soon as he met her. So you can kind of make the connection that subconsciously Larry feared getting into a committed relationship because of the quote unquote loss of manhood. You know, you're not your own person anymore. You're now part of a duo and, you know, you can't kind of sow your wild oats anymore, blah, blah, blah. You're now a one woman man. So I found that really interesting. These thoughts of these kind of allegories about castration and loss of manhood. And even, like I said, especially when Tal but was attacked. I mean, what do you guys think about that stuff? I mean, I don't know if you guys have actually heard of that Wolfman book before, but I did research. Um, I was trying to find a direct connection between the production of the film and this book, and I couldn't really find anything concrete other than, you know, cinematic historians that kind of say, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the person who wrote The Wolfman had obviously read the book The Wolfman because there are, like I said, they don't talk about actual wolves in the book. They're talking about natural lycanthropy. And folks, lycanthropy actually is a real thing, but it's not literally people growing hair and turning into four-legged beasts. What lycanthropy refers to is a change in someone's personality based on the phases of the moon. So, you know, obviously, you know, we always talk about how the crazies come out during a full moon and Mm -hmm. there's actually validity to that because when the moon is full it has a certain effect on certain people's minds making them lose inhibition uh, making them lose their internal filter so that they just you know they kind of just talk like sailors even though they normally wouldn't so yeah this is an actual condition that still exists today like i said the, the fact that freud put out this book and then like i said 23 years later we get this spectacular movie that really highlights, you know, the theories of lycanthropy, loss of manhood, loss of self, too. And, of course, good and evil, which, like I said, they mention in the movie. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Am I am I kind of reaching on this or does that sound like that, 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 that's actually interesting that you say that? Because do you know how this orig- the original script of the Wolfman was actually supposed to go? I do not. There was not going to be any Wolfman in the movie at all. It was supposed to be all psychological. Ah, so that definitely would have played more into the whole lycanthropy thing and just, you know, how the phases of the moon affect the human mind. Yeah, I kind of like what they gave us, though. Ultimately, I think I think in 1941, uh, this is the movie. This is the wolf movie that I think people needed. People needed to see something more visceral, you know, something with an actual creature in it, not necessarily just a guy who thinks he's turning into a creature. So I see the I, I see the merit. 
in their original idea. But wouldn't that be kind of more like Werewolf of London? Because wasn't Werewolf of London kind of psychological, if I remember correctly? No, he's actually bitten. What am I thinking of? Damn it. There was a lycanthropy movie. Werewolf Woman. This time. What's that? Werewolf Woman. That might be it, yes. Potentially. Yeah. I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, I do remember seeing a werewolf, a quote-unquote werewolf film from the time period where yeah, it, it wasn't an actual transformation so much woman. as a, you know, a mental one. I think it's Werewolf Woman. Um, I haven't seen any of the other cheapo cash-ins recently. Uh-huh. Uh, stuff like Cry of the Werewolf, or there's like th- there's like a two or three films that came out like right after. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Cat People is kind of lumped in there because that's kind of similar, but that's yeah. not, it's not really like a werewolf, you know? It's cats, not dogs. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I do like yeah. Cat People. I like the original. I mean, well, the Nastasia Kinski one is pretty good too, but I oh I yeah. like that original. Yeah, for other reasons. <laughs> Oh yeah, well yeah, that's incest for obvious reasons. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I, I think the one, you're, yeah, the one I think you're thinking of might be Werewolf Woman. It's been a while since I've seen it, but that's probably the one I think you're thinking of. Yeah, that could be it, definitely. Or maybe it's She Wolf of London. That could be the other one. Yeah, that sounds more familiar, actually. She Wolf of London. I, it's it's either one of those two. I think those are the. It's probably it's one of those two. I I haven't seen them in right. long enough to know for sure, but I think. It's either one of those two. Oh cool. man, Airwolf Woman's fucking sleazy as all hell. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. All right, boys. That's about everything that I wanted to go over. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to close out this discussion with? Well, uh, I, I think we should mention the elephant in the room of the whole movie is the father son relationship. Yes. Do you at any time believe that Claude Rains fathered Lon Chaney Jr.? <laughs> What, when he was four years old, you mean? <laughs> I, I mean, when you look really, really close, yes, you can tell that Claude Rains is older, slightly older than Lon Chaney. But and yeah, just go and, ahead. And, and the whole thing where it's like he moved away for 18 years and we don't know how old he's supposed to be. But, you know, he has like this tough and tough Texan accent. <laughs> like, I don't know. You know, it's weird in that sense where it's like. Yeah, he uses a full-blown American. <laughs> well, it actually makes sense, too, because in that original script that I mentioned, Larry was actually not supposed to be his son. He was just supposed to be like, like a guy that they hired to fix the telescope, and that's why he came. Ah. But I actually kind of like the performance and the interaction with Cheney and Reigns in either way. It actually kind of shadows actually Cheney's actual relationship he had with his dad in a way. Because nice. he wasn't... Because him and his dad had a bumpy upbringing with his dad, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense where, you know, it kind of shadows it in a way with the, the performance, which I like. But, yeah, you know, it's weird because, you know, Reigns is like the size of a munchkin. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, he's, he's uh, a lot smaller. <laughs> I want to see Larry's mom. Uh, maybe she was tall. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! All right, uh, Don. Any closing thoughts on the Wolfman? That's uh, I can think of. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, well, folks, that's our uh, discussion of 1941's The Wolfman. What did you think of this film? Go ahead and hit us up on our Facebook page. You can also hit us up on our new Twitter page. Our new Twitter handle is going to be uh, the initials of No More Room in Hell plus the word creature. So it's going to be at N M. R-I-H creature. 
all one word. That's a, uh, we just opened that uh, since the first episode started. So go ahead and join the conversation with us. If you have any thoughts, pick movies that you'd like to see us talk about. Um, topics that you'd like to kind of see us uh, in, you know, general topics about creature features that you'd like to hear us talk about, by all means, hit us up on either Facebook or Twitter. Let's go ahead and close out the festivities here and find out where we can all be heard. Uh, Derek, why don't you go ahead and start? What else you got for the folks to listen to? Sure. Uh, at this time, you should be listening to the new Cinema Attack, where we just did two horror anthologies. Trick Our Tree and, of course, Tales of Halloween. That should be out by the time you hear this. Also, we have uh, No More Room in Hell, where we are dead. You're going to get some double No More Room in Hell coming up. A uh, mm-hmm. little surprise coming up where we just record a Halloween commentary. Plus, uh, the newest episode should be out by the time you hear this episode. So, uh, that that's pretty much all. A lot of my other shows are on hiatus right now, or just taking a break because of all the craziness of Halloween. Exactly. <laughs> what about you, Don? Uh, what else you got for folks to listen to? So, um, yeah, uh, weekly show with uh, Venom and Mike. Um, no More Room in Hell presents Fresh Cuts. We should have our latest episode, uh, Halloween Kills, ready by the time you hear this. As for uh, my own personal uh, guest spots, um, I had a hastily received or hastily coordinated I should say, uh, appearance with uh, Dan and Lacey on Cut to the Chase to do, guess what? A werewolf film called Cursed, the Wes Craven one. So um, a lot of uh, lycanthropic uh, activities for me on this end. (laughs) With Judy Greer as the werewolf? (laughs) Yep, that's the one. It's a Judy Greer weekend, folks. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Uh, I love Judy. I always wanted to hate fuck her. <laughs> if you would have told me that, I would have said so on the recording. But um, that was already thrown together by the. That's already um, thrown together and recorded by now. So unfortunately, I can't say that. But um, <laughs> yeah, that one uh, should be out on uh, the Cut to the Chase feed. Um, it's part of their uh, Thrills and Chills uh, uh, season that they're doing for uh, Halloween. And uh, still have my um, as yet unreleased uh, ex- exploration of Indonesian horror that I did on Phantom Galaxy. So uh don't know why that's not released yet, but uh, it should be out sometime before the uh, holiday. So uh, when it's ready, I'll uh, definitely let you guys know about it. But uh, that's uh, all for me. Awesome. All right. Well, as far as I go, my main shows, of course, No More Room in Hell, Fresh Cuts, um, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, which all three of us are on with Mr. Jerry Herring. It's Not Horror OK is taking October off as it's not a horror show and the rest of us are all horror podcasters. So we just decided to take October off. And in the Mike of Madness, we'll be making its triumphant return in October with a salute to the year of the slasher, 1981. This will be a you know fairly loose uh, episode since it's going to be our first episode together for almost a year. But yeah, we already have a record date and that episode will probably drop on Halloween day or potentially the day before. So look out for that. As far as guest spots that I've done, I mean, I've been on the Joe Blow Horror Show to discuss Day of the Dead 
I've been on Cuts of the Chase to discuss uh, Adam's family values. Uh, on another episode of Cuts of the Chase, I did a Halloween uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror commentary for Volume 7. Most recently, I was on the podcast Under the Stairs with Duncan McLeish as part of the Halloween retrospective, the Halloween franchise retrospective. Oh, and yeah, I, I was on that, too. Yes, you were. <laughs> I forgot right. about that. We both had amazing chapters of the Halloween franchise to look at. I believe Derek looked at Halloween H2O. I looked at Rob Zombie's H2. And you know what, folks? Spoiler alert, I'm not a big fan of H2. But for a for a review of a movie that I don't enjoy, this was probably the most fun I've ever had. Uh, I'm not sure when Duncan is dropping those episodes, but look out on the podcast under the stairs feed and you should see all of them. You'll see, you know, appearances, as we've already mentioned by me and Derek, uh, as well as other Legion and Dark Discussions podcast veterans. So look out for that series. And I know I've got other guest spots that I've done uh, that. Oh, um, Gary Hill's uh, Cinema Beef podcast as part of the 31 Days of Howling Beast series where he's doing for all 31 days in October. He's releasing one uh, special guest review of a film with the t- with the word beast in the title. <laughs> Mr. Jerry Herring and myself uh, volunteered to do 1995's The Day of the Beast, also known as El Dia de la Bestia in Spain, in its native Spain. Uh, that was a really fun review. It's a quickie. I mean, these are like 10, 15 minute reviews for the Howling Beast series, but... Yeah, uh, I, uh-huh. I, I actually forgot I actually did one of those too. I did Sea Beast. That's not out yet, but... Sea Beast, very nice. <laughs> uh, and which one? And Don did one too, right? Which one did you do, Don? Yeah, he's from 20,000 Fathoms. Ooh, he got a good one. Nice. He, went with the, he went with the good one. Hell yeah, that's a smart <laughs> way to go. I did like Sea Beast, though, for whatever it was. I did, too. It's not bad. <laughs> well, I absolutely loved my film, but obviously I am a I'm kind of I am a Spaniard. So I, I gravitate towards Spanish horror. <laughs> this is one of like my favorites over the last 25 or so years. It's just really fun. It's not labeled a horror comedy, but there's a lot of unintentional comedy in it. It's uh, written and directed by Alex de la Iglesias who also is the writer and director of 2013's Witchin' and Bitchin', which will actually get reviewed on the next main show of No More Room in Hell. So look out for that. That'll be recorded in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Should definitely be out before Halloween. And I think that's it for me. So, yeah, uh, that's everything, I believe. So on behalf of Derek and Don, thank you all very much for continuing this journey through creature feature love that we have. Thank you very much for joining us. And I can go ahead and announce episode three will be coming to you uh, about halfway through November. On that episode, we will have our first special guest of the series, and that will be Legion Podcasting's uh, Bo Ransdell, uh, host of The Dark Parade, among others. He'll be joining us uh, for a review of 1954's Them. Uh, yeah, we're going to be looking at giant ants, my friends. So uh, Yeah, Fess Parker. Fuck yeah. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, hopefully you can join us for episode three with Bo as we talk about giant ants. And folks, this will be the last time I guess we get to talk to each other between now and Halloween. So again, I hope everyone has a safe and happy Halloween. Scare the shit out of each other, but for God's sakes, don't stab each other. So take <laughs> care, folks. We'll see you next time. Ladies. This is for this is for Tupac. <laughs> Very nice.